Father, as we are reminded this day, we honor the triumphal entrance of Jesus Christ into the city of Jerusalem. That day when palm branches were thrown on the ground and people fell all over themselves calling out honor and glory to your name and, and to the name of Jesus. And yet within a few days, many of those same people would call out for his death. We are a fickle people, Lord, and yet you are consistent, you are faithful, you're the one who, through your compassion, has brought to us salvation. We know that the death of Christ was necessary for that salvation to be ours, and therefore we are thankful. And Lord, I pray that as we approach this Easter time of the year, that we will be reminded and focus on the death and, and primarily the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that all of the trappings that have uh, come along to mask the reality of this time will be set aside and, uh, and our hearts will focus on why it is that Christ came and what it is that he has done. And Lord, as we look at the Old Testament, which Paul says is the schoolmaster for all of us who live in the New Testament era, I pray that you will teach us from the Word of God this day. And I ask that uh, throughout this Sunday school this morning, your name will be exalted and glorified. Lives will be touched by the power of your Holy Spirit. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 12th chapter of the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 12. I'd like to read the first eight verses. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. And he called Aaron and Miriam. When they had both come forward, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? If you remember back just to the previous chapter, the people were complaining against Moses because of the difficulty of the journey and because they had nothing but this manna to eat. And this so depressed Moses that he went to God and said, if, if, if you don't intercede, please kill me because I can't take it anymore. If such a complaint were to put Moses in that frame of mind, can you imagine what an attack from the very two who were closest to him, the two in whom he could put his greatest hope and trust, what an attack stemming from them would mean to Moses. 
Actually, Moses is almost totally silent throughout this 12th chapter. The sister, the woman who, when she was a child, had stood guard over the basket in which Moses was floating in the Nile River. The brother whom the Lord said to Moses at the burning bush, he will be your spokesman. These are the two who now are challenging Moses' leadership of the nation Israel. His position as the in-between person between God and Israel, Miriam and Aaron, questioned his authority ostensibly because he had married a Cushite woman. Now you will remember, going way back into Exodus, that Moses had married a woman of Midian whose name was Zipporah, and by her two children had been born. Now it is possible that Miriam is resurrecting the fact that her brother Moses, some 40 years before, had married this, this alien woman, and, and the fact that she may have been darker in complexion than the average Midianite may have caused her to refer to her as a Cushite woman, which in the context here would be a racial slur. This statement is really very pro-Israelite. It's kind of almost a racial attack here, regardless of who this woman really was. Now, it seems from the wording here that probably Zipporah has died and that Moses has remarried and that in his remarrying that he has married a Cushite woman and that this is the focus of, of the attack. Now, the question would become, where would he find a Cushite woman in, and what does the word Cushite mean? Well, Cush was the name of the land immediately south of Egypt. Today it is called Sudan. It was a land which in those days probably incorporated not only Sudan, but also Ethiopia. And so that's where Cush is. In fact, there was, there, there's ancient record of what is known as the kingdom of Cush, or the kingdom of Merrow. And uh, it was a kingdom in many ways very similar to Egypt. There are pyramids down there. There are statues of kings down there. So they kind of were uh, a takeoff on Egypt in this civilization down there. And eventually, actually about the time of Moses, Egypt conquered that area and expanded uh, the, the, the authority of Egyptian monarchy all the way to the fourth cataract of the Nile, which is way down in, in what is today the country of Sudan. But it could very well be that uh, he met this woman possibly because there was a Cushite family living in the uh, Sinai Peninsula that they had encountered, but that seems a little bit far-fetched. More likely, she was one of the non-Israelites that were traveling with Israel at that particular time. Remember, uh, there have been several references already to the rabble that were traveling with Israel, non-Israelites who had escaped out of Egypt with Israel. They said, wow, Israel's getting away, let's go with them, you know. And they had joined forces and, and had come along. And it could be that many Cushites were part of that because uh, the Egyptians often had forays down into the south and they brought Cushites back as captives and would use them as slaves. Really who this woman was is, is beside the point because this is just an excuse where when Miriam says here, that when it says that uh, they spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, this is really not the point. It was the excuse used to raise the question 
as to whether Moses should be leading alone here. The real point is in verse 2, where it says, And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? What we see here is surfacing in this second verse the fact that they were envious of their brother. They were jealous of the power, the authority that Moses was wielding in the midst of Israel. And since they were both older than Moses, they probably felt that Moses should at least share the leadership and the power with them. Now, isn't that human nature? <laughs> I think so. That's one of the wonderful things about studying all of Scripture, but particularly the Old Testament. Human nature is not glossed over. There it is in all of its raw ugliness, you know, surfacing over and over again. And then God deals with it, and God, you know, explains what all of this means. And, and that's how we understand who God is and how we can live in His presence. Miriam and Aaron. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Well, the answer was obviously no. In fact, God had just prophesied through 70 elders. Remember? Those 70 elders had just been anointed. The Spirit of God came upon them, and they all prophesied. Two of them prophesied in the camp, and that created a stir, as we looked last week. And so, obviously, God was not just prophesying through Moses. In fact, it seems that it was this anointing of the 70 that triggers this whole thing. Because can you imagine, Aaron and Miriam are looking at this thing and they're saying, well, Moses was alone, we're his brother and sister, there's kind of a, a, a carryover here, but now there are 70 other guys here being stuck in this position. And it could very well be that the, the power and the glory are going to be spread amongst 71 and we won't be amongst the 71. And that seems to, to trigger up this whole sense of jealousy here. Then they ask a second question. Has he not spoken through us as well? And the answer to that question is yes, he has. God has spoken through Aaron on many occasions. Aaron is the high priest. Aaron is the one that God said to Moses, he will be your spokesman, he will be your mouthpiece. I will speak through him. So Aaron has many times spoken on behalf of the Lord. And so is Miriam. You remember back in the 15th chapter of Exodus after they crossed the Red Sea. Miriam it was that led Israel in singing the psalm of Moses, the song of Moses that's recorded there. And in that passage it says, Miriam was a prophetess. So yes, Aaron, yes, Miriam, had both been spokesmen for the Lord. So the answer to the question was yes. In Micah chapter 6, verse 4, we read that the Lord reminded His people of what He had done for them by saying, Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So God puts them all together there in this prophetic passage looking back at the time of the Exodus. Well, the first, or last actually, the last five words of the second verse are both wonderful and ominous and the Lord heard it. They are wonderful because they are reminders of the fact that God is omnipresent and that He is imminent. He is here and He cares. The Lord heard it. He wasn't off doing something else, you know, 
around the world in, in you know, <coughs> Australia, dealing with the Aborigines or something at the moment. He may have been doing that, but he wasn't moved from Israel. He knew what was going on every moment of the time, and he reacts to it. They're ominous words because they indicate that the Lord took exception to Miriam and Aaron and what they were saying. Now, throughout Scripture, one of the things that really bothers some people is that Scripture takes some things about God for granted. And one of the things that you'll find the Bible presents as matter of fact is God's omniscience. That God knows all things, and God doesn't just suddenly discover, uh-oh, I didn't know this was going on. Not quite, you know. When it says down there, and the Lord heard it, it doesn't mean all of a sudden the Lord heard them say, uh-oh, what's going on down there? I should be paying attention. No, 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 no. Whenever you read the phrase, and the Lord heard it, it means the Lord is about to do something about it. It doesn't mean that he suddenly discovers what's going on. Verse 3, in this context, is a bit of a difficult verse to reckon with. <coughs> now, the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. <laughs> now, the problem with it is, <laughs> Moses wrote numbers. <laughs> and uh, that's at least what we believe. Some use this verse as, as, a, as an excuse to argue that Moses didn't write numbers, but I think that's pretty flimsy excuse here. Is it likely that a truly humble man will say, I am the most humble man <laughs> on all of this planet? <laughs> now, if I were to say that about myself, you'd all know. <laughs> yes, you'd all laugh very much. And I'd laugh at you if you said it too. But, you know, in many ways, this could be interpreted as simply Moses acknowledging the truth, not that it was something for him to brag about, because it was something that God had done. <laughs> now, God had made him the man that he was. And, and part of that humility is expressed in that, as you read through this chapter, the only time you find Moses saying anything is a six-word prayer. And that's it, for someone else, not even for himself. So, you know, in some ways, he is, he is silent, and, and that silence in the face of an attack is, is truly, at least in this circumstance, an expression of humility. Some argue that uh, Moses wrote it because he was simply under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he wrote whatever the Spirit said, even if his own feelings didn't agree with that. Others come along and say, because, you know, you, you'll notice it's, it's a parenthetical statement here. Some say it was added later, that was a gloss. But there is no evidence of that. I mean, there's no evidence. There's no place where you can find this passage without it, and then later this passage with it. It's always been there, even in the oldest manuscripts that are available. The best argument seems to be, at least from my perspective, uh, in understanding the Hebrew word here, which is translated as humble, if you look this word up, you'll discover that the word translated humble here has several other definitions. And one of those definitions is used, for example, in Isaiah 53, verse 4, where it says of Jesus, and he was smitten of God and afflicted. It's the same word. It's the same Hebrew word here. And so it's maybe better to understand this as now Moses, the man, Moses, was very afflicted 
more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And that would be very fitting with the feeling that he felt here. Very afflicted. He has already been attacked by the entire nation. And now he's attacked by the only two people left on this planet that he could actually feel he could trust with whatever his feelings were. And they have attacked him. I am the most <coughs> afflicted, the most miserable of men. I think we could read that in there and uh, understand that that's what he was saying. It fits his earlier depression. It fits his complaint to the Lord when he said, Oh Lord, kill me. I am afflicted. I'm a tortured man. I'm a miserable man. Elijah, you remember, later after he went through his a little hassle there with Jezebel out in the desert uh, on the mountain down in, well, this mountain down here, and he says, Lord, I'm the only prophet that honors you left. That's how he felt. Of course, God said, no, that's not true. There are 7,000, but that's how he felt, and certainly that may have been what Moses felt here. <laughs> Verse 4, you'll notice, begins with the words, and suddenly. Now, that may just kind of pass by, but what's interesting is that the Hebrew word, which is translated suddenly here, wherever you find it used in the Old Testament, is always connected with disaster and judgment. Whenever it says, and suddenly, then what comes after is, wham, wherever it is used. And so it is here. And suddenly the Lord said. Uh, you know, we have to get beyond the thing that you're just kind of walking along and, you know, suddenly the Lord talks to you. No, no, no. This is like, whoosh. <laughs> the hammer has fallen. And suddenly the Lord speaks. Now, God has apparently allowed Miriam and Aaron to complain publicly about Moses for probably several days here now. We don't know the time frame exactly here. And uh, he, he allowed them to do this with the thought that they might come to their senses after a while and repent and get this thing straightened out. Now again, we know the Lord knows the beginning from the end. He knows what we're going to do before we do it. But the Lord still gives us time, like he gave the 400 years to the to the Amorites before Israel came in and destroyed them. God gives time. But the change of heart did not come. They did not repent. They didn't come to their senses and say, whoops, Moses is God's man. We better mind our mouths here. But this change of heart does not occur, so God intervenes directly. Wherever they were in the camp, we're not told where they were in the camp. Were they outside the tent of Moses? We don't know. They were somewhere in the camp and suddenly God broke in. They were together. What were they talking about? Was, was Miriam directly and Aaron directly complaining to Moses? We don't find any words of Moses in this passage here, except the prayer later. And God breaks in suddenly. And you'll notice that his command is concise and it's intimidating. You three come out to the tent of meeting. No extra words there. You three come out to the tent of meeting now, is the implication. And I don't think God's voice was tender and gentle. Would you, little lambs, please? <laughs> now, if Aaron and Miriam had any sense, any sense of discernment, 
I think there would be a little uh-oh rising up inside them. I think a little foreboding would begin to shade into their minds that maybe not all is well here in the camp. And I don't think Moses was excited about this either because he thought, oh, we've got to go face God like a bunch of squabbling kids. But I think inside he had a sense that God would vindicate him. Well, they were obedient. They went out, went to the tabernacle. And, and you know, this whole thing was done publicly. Miriam and Aaron had been jabbering publicly. And so I think as they went, all the people who were around were watching them go. You know, what's going to go on? They may not have heard the voice of the Lord, or they may have. We don't know. But certainly many were watching them as they went to the tabernacle. The Lord appeared to them in the pillar of cloud at the doorway of the tabernacle, and he called Miriam and Aaron forth. He called them on what we would say today, the carpet. I think now their knees are beginning to be a little rubbery as they approach the cloud from whence God is speaking. And I think they're beginning to have this sense that maybe they have rushed in where angels fear to tread, as we sometimes think. Can you picture this? The tabernacle, the cloud, God, Moses, man's God behind them, the two of them standing side by side in front of the sovereign God of the universe. Center stage of everything that was happening in the world at that moment. This was center stage. Notice the very first thing God does. He doesn't chew them out first. The very first thing he does is vindicate Moses. Greater words of vindication cannot be found in Scripture. God says, this is the king of the universe speaking, the creator of all, Yahweh. And he says of Moses, he is my servant, faithful in all my household. By implication, more faithful than you two. With him I don't speak in dark sayings like I speak to other prophets. I speak mouth to mouth, face to face. And we've already talked about, particularly the encounters of Moses with God recorded in Exodus. Wonderful encounters. Unlike the encounters of virtually anyone else in Scripture. And then he says, He beholds the form of the Lord as, is, as intimate as it was possible to be with God. And then what is he saying to them in effect? Who are you to challenge my chosen leader. Who are you? Now, it's not quite as bad, and it's a totally different scene and, and the opposite side of the coin, but you remember when the seven sons of Sceva tried to uh, cast out demons, you know, because they had seen Paul doing that, and the demons said, well, we know who Paul is, and we know who Christ is, but who in the world are you guys? You know? And that's kind of the other side of the coin here, and God is saying... Uh, Moses is my chosen servant. Who are you to challenge his leadership? If their hearts had been right, they would have rejoiced in Moses' leadership. And they would have been delighted simply to be known as the brother and sister of Moses, the man who had met God on the top of Sinai, who had come down with a glowing face, who had delivered the Ten Commandments carved on stone, who had beheld God at the burning bush, who 
who had been in the cleft of the rock, to be his brother and sister. How wonderful. But no, they want in on the power and the glory without having been through the encounters with God that Moses had been through. Their hearts were set upon the flesh. Their concern was, within, was with personal power and personal glory. Pride had led them to great folly, as Scripture clearly teaches. Our pride will kill us. Literally, it will. And it's something we have to deal with every day. We can't just throw away our pride and say, ah, my pride is gone. I am now a humble, meek person, and I'll be that way the rest of my life. Yeah, five minutes later, somebody will cross your path in the wrong way, and the beast will rise. No, it's something that has to be dealt with continuously, and a lot of it with a great deal of repentance. Moses was so obviously God's chosen leader, and the one through whom God spoke to his people. Mo, uh, Aaron, uh, Miriam and Aaron should have been scared to death to speak against him. If they had, you know, remember last week we noted that when the two elders prophesied in the camp and a young man came running out and said to Moses, two, two men are over there, they're prophesying in camp, and Joshua says to Moses, deal with them because they're, they're, in effect they're, he's, Joshua is saying, they're, they're a challenge to your authority. And, and Moses says, oh, would that all the people prophesied. Would that all the people had the Spirit of God upon them. I mean, his, his, Moses' focus was the glory of God and the good of Israel. Moses' focus was not the elevation of Moses. If Miriam and Aaron had, had been able to take a page from that book or learn a lesson from that, they would have been seeking the good of Israel and the glory of God rather than their own personal glory and power, this temptation for self-exaltation. Now, if it were possible for God to be incredulous, then God would have been incredulous when he asked them, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? I mean, you can, you can read in incredulity into that question, except I don't think God can be incredulous. I mean, God can believe anything and everything uh, about the human race because it's all happened. But I, I think we can read it into that. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant? What he was saying there is that your attack was not just an attack upon the man Moses, but your attack was also upon me because I ordained him, and I empowered him, and I put him in that position, and you're questioning me, not just Moses. Put yourself now, if you can, in the sandals of Miriam and Aaron, after you've heard these words of God, and, and you recognize that you stand totally defenseless, without excuse, <laughs> before the God whom the Scripture calls a consuming fire. I think they were terrified. You know, the scripture tells us that the fear of the living God is a very, very good thing. And, and that doesn't just mean fear in the sense of, yeah, he's awesome. I think it's fear in the sense that, I mean, we need to be afraid of God in certain circumstances. He is our savior. He is our father. But if we cross him, he is one to be feared. They're speechless. You notice they say nothing. And they had nothing to say in their defense. Let's read the last half of the chapter. So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. And when the cloud was 
had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned towards Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, O oh, my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us, in which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. O oh, do not let her be like one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. And Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, O oh God, heal her, I pray. The only words of Moses in this chapter. O oh God, heal her, I pray. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterwards she shall be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and when the people and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. Afterward, however, the people moved from Hazareth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. The first nine words of that ninth verse constitute the most frightening phrase that can be penned in human language. So the anger of the Lord burned against them. I mean, you know, you can deal with the anger of almost anybody. You can probably live through the anger of most anybody or, you know, at the worst, you might be killed. But the anger of the Lord, there is no antidote for the anger of the Lord. The anger of the Lord against Miriam and Aaron resulted in immediate punishment. If you picture them here, they are standing in absolute stunned silence after they have heard God's words in verses 6 through 8. And they watched the cloud rise and go up towards the heavens. And then when they could bring themselves back to ground and could, could, could bring themselves to look at each other, can you imagine how hard that would be? And he finally, Aaron, looks at, and, at Miriam and he's just shocked. She's snow white with leprosy, head to toe. Now, some have attacked this passage. You have here a male god and you have a male Aaron and a male Moses. And here we have a conspiracy against women. <laughs> Some say that this passage was fabricated. That it couldn't have come from God. It was made up by a Hebrew male chauvinist, obviously, who was simply expressing Hebrew misogyny. After all, why is Miriam leprous? and Aaron standing there still well. Well, the argument is that obviously Aaron and Miriam are equally guilty, so why aren't they equally punished? We live in this day of equality, and you know, in, in many areas that is an important emphasis. In fact, before God it's important. There is neither male nor female in the eyes of the living God. So what's happening here? Well, if we go back to the first verse of the chapter, where we read, then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. We discovered two things. First, we discover the order, Miriam and Aaron. Now, in Scripture, order is important. So this indicates that Miriam has the preeminent position in this whole event which is transpiring. But what further emphasizes this is that when you read the, the word the one, two, three, four, fifth word in, then Miriam and Aaron spoke. This, the, the Hebrew word spoke here, the, the verb is in the feminine form, which indicates that a female was doing the speaking. 
So what we find out is that Miriam was the instigator and the primary spokesperson of this rebellion against Moses. Remember Aaron and the golden calf? Was it Aaron who said, hmm, let me think now. Moses is gone. Let's build a golden calf and worship it. No, no, no. It's a bunch of rabble-rousers came, and, and they, they more or less twisted Aaron's arm into to doing this, and he very reluctantly went along. Aaron was a go-along type person, and so he is a go-along person here. He is not the mind, mastermind here. He is the accomplice uh, in, in the situation here. Now, Aaron is not struck leprous, as Miriam was, but if you understand this passage, you really discover that Aaron was pierced through the heart with guilt. I mean, at that moment, he would have gladly exchanged places with Miriam. He was so shamed. You know, there are times when, when guilt and shame is a more difficult burden to bear than serious physical illness. He saw what had happened to Miriam, and he, you know, his, his thought was, I'm as equally guilty as she. How can this happen to her? And his sense of guilt is heightened by the fact that he is the high priest of Israel. He is supposed to be the prime example. He should have dissuaded Miriam from the beginning and said, no, no, Miriam, let's don't do that. He is the anointed one. We must accept it that way. No, he doesn't do that. There's no statement that he dissuades her at all. He just goes along and becomes a yes man, a sycophant here. And he is the high priest. In verses 11 and 12 of this passage, we see the description of Aaron's distress. And you'll notice what he does. He immediately repents on his behalf and on her behalf. He repents for the two of them. He does not place the blame on her. He doesn't say, Lord, she did it, and therefore she got what she deserves. No. He could have, because she was the instigator, and, and she was the one who was leprous, and she, he could have said, look, it's obviously it's her fault. I just got drug into this. No. He takes full responsibility, because he goes to Moses, you know, he says, my Lord. <laughs> this is his younger brother. My Lord. And you notice how he talks with Moses. He talks to Moses almost as if Moses is God. He's confessing to Moses, knowing that he is confessing to God in the process. And he says, we have acted foolishly. We have sinned. These are the prayers throughout Scripture, which are some of the most powerful uh, prayers ever prayed. We, we, we. The we of Ezra, you know, the we of Daniel people who include themselves even though they may not, have, may not have really any direct share in whatever the problem is or the, or the sin was. I mean, Ezra hadn't gone off and married some pagan uh, woman from amongst the Canaanites, but, but nevertheless he says, we, because he knew he was a sinner as they were, we have sinned. Here we have honest repentance from the depths of Aaron's heart, and God always hears such a prayer. God will never turn his back on a prayer that is repentant and comes from the heart of the person praying. Aaron was devastated by the thought that his sister was going to spend her life dying a slow 
agonizing death. She would be as a walking dead person, in effect. And on top of what made it all the worse was she would have to be an outcast from their society. She'd always have to live outside the camp. She could not have direct contact with any of the other members of her family or any of the other members of her society. She, she would be fed by people taking stuff out and leaving it for her. Generally, that's what happened to lepers. And, and Aaron just couldn't bear the thought of such a humiliating demise for his sister because he knew that in her heart of hearts that wasn't the kind of person she was. You'll notice that Aaron acknowledges Moses' special relationship with God here. He comes to him as if he is his priest. He's the high priest, but he goes to Moses as if Moses is the high priest. And he asks him to intercede with God for Miriam. And Moses' response is immediate. Moses does not say, well, I don't know. <laughs> you guys have been bad-mouthing me and making me look foolish in front of all of Israel. You know, maybe you ought to just wallow in this for a little while, you know. No, that is not the heart of the man Moses, because that's not the heart of God. Regardless of what she had done, she was his sister. He loved her. She was a prophetess in Israel. Therefore, Moses went to God immediately, and he, he prayed a concise, pointed prayer. You know, he didn't start out, Oh, God of the universe, King of creation, let me describe your attributes to you and let me tell the story of all that you have done. He simply goes to God and he says, Oh, God, heal her. Like Peter, sinking in the waves, help! <laughs> you don't have much time for a long prayer. <laughs> how, how could Moses pray that way? Because Moses knew his God. Moses was hand in hand, as God said, face to face, mouth to mouth. He didn't have to go around the bush and butter up God or, you know, set the tone. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray prayers that, that offer thanksgiving. We're commanded to do that. But at the same time, there are, there's, there's a moment when we need, need to cut to the chase. And let's get to the point of this prayer here. God doesn't need to be informed about a lot of things he already knows. And the length of the prayer, I don't think, is what it takes to convince God to do something. Now, the scripture does teach about persistence. But I don't think persistence is necessarily in a long prayer. It's just in a consistent attitude of prayer on behalf of the need, whatever it might be. Well, I think what we discover here is that a sincere prayer prayed from the depths of a repentant heart is heard by God. And we also discover another aspect of God in his response here. He heard Moses' prayer, and he responded in the affirmative. But he says, in my own time, something needs yet to be accomplished here. He says, if she had done nothing more than cause her father some disgrace so that he spit in her face, she would have to be set apart for a week just for that. That was the, that was the custom of Israel at that time. It's the custom of the people who lived in that part of the world at that time. Uh, she would have to be set apart, you know, because the father was, in effect, lord of the family. And, and you, you shame him in some way, and, and he takes it out on you, then, then you're, in a, you're in the doghouse, so to speak, for a period of time. So, certainly, 
since she has led a public insurrection against the chosen leader of God, is she going to be punished privately and all cleared up privately so nobody knows but Aaron and Moses what happened? No way. All of Israel knew that Miriam and Aaron were in insurrection against Moses. It was a public rebellion. Therefore, she will be publicly punished. And Aaron will be publicly punished, you know, because they're both in this together. And so her leprosy will be upon her. And she will go outside the camp and be out there for the week that was necessary after they were supposedly cleansed for the priests then to check at the end of the week to make sure that everything was okay and to be allowed to return back into the nation. Her leprosy and her isolation outside the camp would serve as a powerful example to all Israel. That God expects his people to accept and obey his chosen leader, Moses, and to willingly serve under his leadership, and that there is no place for jealousy and envy, and to rise up a rebellion against the leadership of, God, of God's man is to raise up rebellion against God. Well, in two weeks, we're going to begin that rather interesting account of the spies being sent in to the land and the reaction that comes as the spies come back with what the land was like. And incredibly, the people rebel. <laughs> 